We are in week three of our series on love for the lost. And this is probably the high point of the entire series. Uh, This is where all the darkness starts to fade away because of the love that God has for each and every one of us. Uh, It's funny, when I wasn't a father yet, um, I kind of thought I had good experience in understanding love for children. I had been a children's pastor, a children's teacher, a youth minister. Uh, I'd worked with kids a lot before I had my own. Uh, But I always remember my dad just telling me, you don't understand. You will not understand until you have your own. And about uh, six years ago, almost most exactly, uh, my son was born. And it's strange because I'll never forget that first moment. Uh, Nicole had to have a C-section. And so, of course, you get a little, I mean, you're already kind of nervous and tense as it is. Uh, especially with how the whole evening went for us. Um, we were sitting there, and you know how you're supposed to know like the six minutes? Right, when the contractions are six minutes apart, that's when you need to, you need to be getting going. So it's like 2 a.m., I wake up and I see her sitting next to me, and I'm like, everything okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm good. So I'm tired, I go back to bed. But I, I can't fully drift to sleep, and I look at her and go, are you having contractions? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine though. I'm like, you sure? She's like, yes. So I lay my head back down. I pop it back up about 10 seconds later and I go, are they regular? And she's like, yeah, but don't worry about it. So I lay my head back down. Pop it up and say, wait, how much in between? And she's like, three minutes. I'm like, three minutes? Pop out of bed, getting everybody ready. We rush there. It was kind of funny though, because we rushed there and they're like, nothing happened for hours. For hours. For hours and hours and hours. Finally, they tell us, you know, they need to do the C-section, so she gets rolled away to surgery. I'm in the gown, and, you know, I'll all masked up. You're nervous, and you're waiting. And uh, we go into the room. Surgery starts. Everything's going real smooth. And they pull the baby boy out. And it's quiet. Real quiet. And you see that kind of look in the eyes, because you can't see any facial expressions, you just see eyes. Now the doctor's kind of looking at each other. And I look at Ty, and, and he's blue. He's just blue. Not crying, and the doctors are trying to tell you everything's okay, so like, it's, it's fine, it's good. And I, and I hear one of them whisper, code blue. Which, if you haven't worked in hospitals, code blue means you have someone who's not breathing. Um, I unfortunately knew this because I had spent some time as a chaplain at Methodist Hospital where our son was born. And so I, I hear them say this, I'm freaking out. I'm just freaking out. And I watch them take him over to the corner and they start working with him. And it was funny because in that moment, it felt like my whole life hung in the balance. It felt like my whole life was going to be determined on what happened in those next few seconds. And I remember poor Nicole, she can't see any of this. So she's looking at me like, is everything okay? And I'm just like, yep, mm-hmm. Everything's good. And thankfully, thankfully, on one of those slaps, that beautiful little cry found it. 
the best noise in the entire world. And it was strange because after they you know, took him away and cleaned him up and he had to spend some time in the NICU, I was sitting there after everybody was quiet and I was thinking about how strange this was. At that second, that little human being, I didn't know him. Never played catch with him. I never gone to the park with him. I never had a conversation with him. I didn't know anything about his personality. I didn't know anything about how he'd look. I knew nothing about that child. I knew nothing about his spirit. I knew nothing about the things that I would love. And yet still, in that moment, that was my whole life. Why? Because that was flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bone. That was a child that God had shaped and put inside my wife and that God had destined for us. And even though I hadn't known Him, even though I knew nothing about Him, He had my whole heart. All of it. And it was an unbelievably profound moment for me because throughout all of Scripture, God continually points to Himself as who? Our Father. Always, throughout Scripture, He points to Him and says, I am like your father. And to be honest, it wasn't until that moment that I understood how profound that statement is. How a father loves their child. And that love, it's bigger than just, I love them because they're good. It's not, I love them because they're talented. It's not because I love them because they're beautiful. It's not because I love them because of any other reason except for one. I love them because they're mine. They're mine. And so as we come to this place where the sun returns, I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Because we're going to see, even as a grown man comes back to a father much later in life, it is that emotion, it's that sentiment, it's that love that's still present, still strong. Now, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, let me just recap. So we're in the book of Luke, and we're looking at chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And I'm going to ask if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. Brothers and sisters, make sure you bring in your Bible, make sure you're using it. And I say that not just for your own good, but especially for the good of those other people in your families. Right? Your children should regularly see you using the Word of God. Your children should see you regularly leaning upon it. Not just at bedtime, because it's a story time, but they should see you go into it day in and day out. Teach them to have a love for that. Have a comfort with this good book that this is yours and you know how to use it. You know how to walk through it. You know how to read it. In Luke chapter 15, we're in the third parable that Jesus teaches about something lost. Right? He's been talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have been giving Jesus a very difficult time because of one particular thing that Jesus does. Jesus hangs with sinners. They don't mind Jesus preaching to sinners. They don't mind Jesus telling sinners that they're wrong, but they do mind that Jesus eats with them. And he sits with them, and he talks with them, and he communes with them. He has fellowship with sinners. They can't stand that. 
The righteous, the holy, the godly should separate themselves from those who are muddy and dark. That's their thought. So here comes this man who proclaims to be so close to God and yet he jumps right into the muck with them. How dare he? And in response to this, Jesus tells three stories. He tells one about a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep with everything he's got. And that when he finds that sheep, he has unbelievable joy. Then he tells about a woman who loses a coin. And it's kind of interesting. We don't always have this connotation, but the coin is actually part of jewelry. And so there's, she's got all these coins, but she loses just one little piece of it. And what does she do? She sweeps everywhere and looks everywhere for that one piece that she's missing. And when she finds it, she invites her friends over and she celebrates. The culmination of all these stories is this one about the lost son. About a son that turns away from his father. And so let me recap where we've been over the last few weeks. We started with, we have a rich man. He has two children. Older and younger. Older, we really don't get to hear a lot about up front. We just know he has an older brother. The younger one, however, makes an unbelievable, shameful demand. He comes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance and I want it now. And he makes it clear that his intention, not only is, does he want that inheritance, but he wants it so that he can leave. And so his overall message to his father is, I wish you were dead. My life would be so much better if I just had your money and I was free of you. Man, if I had those things. If I had those two things, I could make my dreams come true. If I had those two things, the world would be at my beck and call. That's the request he makes of his father. What's interesting is the father doesn't punish him, doesn't yell at him, doesn't kick him out, doesn't curse him. And, and remember, he could have. Jewish law back then would have sided with the father. This, this son could have been beaten, he could have been ostracized, he could have been kicked out, he could have been just gone. But the father doesn't do that. Instead, the father gives the son exactly what he asked for. He gives him his inheritance. And so we see the father make this surprising response that we don't quite understand. We don't really get why would he do this. And in fact, what we miss in our culture is today we don't have a high respect society. Today we don't in America have a, a strong core family values anymore. But it's usual in our country and in our society that you have a family and your children grow up and they move all over the place. That was unheard of back then. You didn't leave home. You had to stay in the core. You had to stay together. You were a family unit. You were a tribe. Why would you ever want to be anywhere but here? We don't understand that anymore. Our culture is so unbelievably different. And so we see the father make this unbelievably surprising response. But, but the sad part is, the son's not done yet. He's not done running in darkness. Often as it goes with sin, right, it's a snowball effect. Right, have any of you ever woke up in a dark place and gone, how did I get here? And you can almost track it back to like one really bad decision that started it all. It's like, well, I did this, and then, whew, 
48 hours later, I have some stories to tell, right? And so that's with his son. He doesn't only make this insult to his father, but then he goes and he lives badly. Right? Not only does he take the inheritance, but then he sells it for pennies on the dollar because the inheritance was actual things. It wasn't money. He sells it for pennies on the dollar. He leaves to a Gentile land. He uses the money that he has on sinful debauchery. And not only does he use it for the wrong things, but he blows through it so fast that before he knows it, he's dead broke and famine strikes. And so where we left off last week is after this shameful behavior, he's left feeding pigs in the middle of nowhere, so hungry, he wishes he could eat their food. He is literally at rock bottom. He has been kicked to the countryside by the Gentiles. He's a Jew taking care of pigs. And he has absolutely nothing. And it's here at rock bottom that we finally see him have some humility. Rock bottom, he finally has some humility. Which, brothers and sisters, is an interesting point for us. I'm betting that most of you right now, if I asked you to think for a few seconds, have somebody in your life that you love beyond words. But right now, they're not on the right path. Right now, they're running the wrong way. And probably every single day of your life, forget day, probably every hour, every minute, you're thinking about them. And you're concerned, and you're worried. And at times, you look at where they're at, and you wonder, where is God? If God loves them, why isn't He grabbing them out of this and pulling them back? Well, brothers and sisters, this right here is why. What God knows is sometimes you and I, we have to run in our sin. Sometimes the best way for us to come back to Him is for us to get everything we ever dreamt of and realize how empty it is. Unfortunately for some of us, it is only at rock bottom when we can't go any further that we will hit our knees, we will look up and go, Father, I need you. And so if you have those people in your life, you pray for that. You pray that God will use those circumstances. You pray that God will let them run in that to a place where they hit rock bottom and are left with only one place left to turn, which is right back to Him. So let's pick up right there. If you have your Bibles, let's start looking. We're going to look at verse 17. We're in Luke chapter 15, looking at verse 17. But when he came into his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. Do you see how it starts? Just like kind of almost black, white, calculating, right? I am starving here, wishing I could eat garbage from pigs. My dad treats his workers better than this. If I could just be his servant again, I'd be in a much better place. But he's just pragmatically thinking about things, and he realizes, I've messed up so bad, (laughs) I just wish I worked for my dad. That that would change my life right now. He said, I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Beautiful. And let me explain why, because I think this is huge. And especially married people, pay attention. Kids, pay attention. When I was a kid, I would regularly get in trouble for saying I was sorry. Have you ever had that happen to you as a kid? My dad's line was, sorry doesn't cut it. And I always hated that because I was like, if I don't say I'm sorry, do you know what I hear from him? You haven't even apologized yet. If I did say I was sorry, he'd then look at me and go, sorry doesn't cut it, son. And so when I mess up, I'd be like, which one do I want to go with? Do I want to sorry doesn't cut it? Or you didn't even say you're sorry yet. And it wasn't until I was older that I listened to the rest of what he was saying when he said, sorry doesn't cut it. And what he was finishing that statement with, I just never listened, was the reason in those situations sorry didn't cut it was I was only apologizing because I'd been caught in doing wrong. I had messed up so badly, everybody knew I messed up. I was sitting in my filth. It was clear to anybody who passed me by, Luke has messed it up. And only then, when there was no way for me to save the day or fix it, would I go, sorry. Was I really sorry? No, I was simply acknowledging the circumstances around me. It's like these, these public celebrities we have that make these public apologies after video comes out of what happened. Are they really sorry? Like the activity happened months ago, and for months they've been denying all of it. It's not until video evidence is shown to us, and it's clear to everybody what really happened, and they then come out with a written statement and go, let me tell you how sorry I am. And all of us look at that and go, you're not sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. And so the reason I told you spouses and children to listen is we stink at apologizing. Saying sorry is not enough. Because the reality is most times when we say we're sorry, it's because everybody can see we've made a mistake. That's not what this young boy's doing though. This isn't an apology, this is repentance. Repentance starts with the acknowledgement that I've messed up. It starts with me realizing I'm here because of my decisions, because of my greed, because of my selfishness, because of my whatever, fill in the blank. I have made this mess. I have created this. I am wrong. And not only am I wrong, but my wrongness has not just impacted me. It's impacted others. Notice what does he say? He says, I have sinned against who? Against heaven and you. And the beauty of that first step is he realizes all sin, first and foremost, is the greatest offense to who? To God the Father. And so he acknowledges, I've made this mess. I, I, I've made a mistake. Everybody sees that. But not only that, not only have I made a mistake, but I've done this against God and I've done this against you, Father. He's starting to see the impact of what he has done. Right? Bad apologies never understand both the action that created it or the impact of what they did. 
Right? It's like, sorry, I lied. Okay, that's a bad apology. A good apology goes, sorry, I lied because I was thinking like this and I was selfish like this and that led me to think that the best action was this and I should have done that. I knew it was wrong. And I see that by doing that, I've hurt you. I've lost your trust. I've changed the way you look at me. But whatever the impact is, you're acknowledging, here's what led to this, here's what it is, and here's the impact it's made. You're acknowledging all those things. You're letting them know, I see. I see what I've done. And then there's a key part. Because even there, if you just stop, not good enough. Not in the eyes of God. Why? Because how many of us have seen people who make great apologies over and over and over and over and over again? And every time, what do they do? They go do the exact same thing. I always tell the kids this. They ask me to explain in ch uh, kids' class like the, the difference between this. And I said, imagine I walked up to you and I punched you in the face and said, sorry, and then punched you in the face again and said, sorry, and then punched you again in the face. That third time I say, sorry, you think I'm sorry for punching you in the face? If you do think I'm sorry, you're an idiot. And what's funny is if human beings know this without infinite knowledge and wisdom, why do we think God doesn't? So the first part is he gets, I have sinned, I've made this bed, I've created this, I did this out of selfishness and greed, I've sinned against Father, I've sinned against my Heavenly Father. And then he does the key part that's repentance. He turns around. Repentance isn't just sorry, it's turning around. It's going back off the wrong path onto the right one. And look what he does. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so do you see the beauty of that? He's sitting there in his muck. He knows what he's done. He acknowledges the mistake. And then he goes home. And going home, what is he prepared for? He's prepared for a new reality. He knows that he does not deserve to be his father's son. All he deserves, all he's asking for, because he doesn't deserve, he's going to beg for it, is let me have a job. If you could just have enough compassion to let me have a job, my goodness, please. That's a repentant heart. Acknowledges the mistake, sees the impact, asks for forgiveness, and acknowledges, I don't expect to go right back to where we were. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you so often I have seen marriages that never make it past a major incident because of that last piece where they expect it just to go back to exactly how it was. There are repercussions for what we do. Even when forgiveness is given to us, what that means is that we have an ability to take a new path forward. It means I will keep taking steps with you in a new direction. But what it doesn't mean is we go right back to where we were. 
It doesn't mean we go right back to where we were. That is not what is expected most of the time in life because there's repercussions to our actions. And that's what the son's ready for. He's ready for that. He's ready to go home and not be treated like a son, but to be treated as a servant. Now, did any of you guys like me ever get in trouble with your mom and then she would say these words to you? Wait till your father gets home? Anybody ever have that? I hated that. Because here's what I would do. In the moments from whenever that happened to when father gets home, I didn't play, I didn't watch TV, I didn't eat, I would rehearse. What am I going to say? How am I going to explain this? What are most, when should I start the crying? Should I cry? Should I say I'm sorry? I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Right? I'd go through this whole thing. I'd be working it out in my head, playing out what's going to happen when he gets in. I bet you that entire journey home, this young man was doing that. That entire journey home, thinking about what am I going to say? What's he going to do? Will he even talk to me? Is he going to punch me? Is it, what's going to happen? I, I just hope I can get to a place where we can talk. It says that when he was far off, his father saw him. Which, let's break those things down. If he's far off and the father sees him, what does that tell us the father does? It means the father's looking for him. It means that father has not given up on this child. It means while he is gone and he is distant, every day I bet you that father walks his land and he looks on the horizon, waiting, hoping, praying for that moment that he will see his son out there. And when he sees him, when he sees him, does he sit there and wait? Does he pull up a chair and go, now I'm going to get to give you the I told you so speech. I love those. No, the father, the father runs to him. And when he gets to him, he embraces him and he kisses him. And again, think back, this is a high respect culture. The father is the one who has been demeaned. The father is the one who has been hurt. The father is the one who's been disrespected. Yet when he sees his son fall off, does he do the respectable thing? No. He takes off running to his son. He grabs him. He embraces him. He kisses him. In that moment, the father doesn't care how you think about him. The father doesn't care what he looks like. He doesn't care what others will say about him. He doesn't care about his reputation. In that moment, there is only one thing driving that dad. And that's, there's my boy. Amen. My boy is coming back home. And that emotion, it just outpours from him in every crevice. And look what happens. In 21, it says, And the son said to him, Right, he starts the speech. Been practicing. Okay, I get a chance. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice, 
He doesn't get to finish. Right? When he rehearsed it, there's another line. He has to be just one of his servants. But look what the father does. The father cuts him off there. And in 22 it says, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was been lost and now is found. And then they began to celebrate. There's no I told you so. There's no punishment. The father looks at him and the father has seen. He, he knows what he did. He's tasted the fruits of his greed and his selfishness. And that moment what the father wants to make sure that son knows is that he is loved. And he is loved purely. And he is loved fully. Now, brothers and sisters, it brings us to an interesting question. Because the question is, is does he really deserve this? Does the son deserve to be treated this way? In fact, is anybody willing to be honest? Do any of you read that story and go, that's not how I would have handled it? He wouldn't be getting no kisses and hugs, not yet. I can tell you, in my house, we'd be going through a lecture first. There'd be kisses and hugs later. But we would start with, let's walk through what happened here, son. There's some of us that read that and go, I don't even know if this is the right way to handle it. God doesn't care. What God cares about is pouring the love out upon this child. And what you and I need to understand in this is that the answer to the question is, does the son deserve this? Is clear. No. The son doesn't deserve any of this. You know what the son deserves? The son actually deserves to be greeted, not by his father, but by one of his father's servants who tells him, you can turn around and go right back to where you've gone. You have taken everything you ever wanted from this place and you are not welcome here anymore. If we see you again, it will not go so nicely. That's what he deserves. And I stress this to you because brothers and sisters, I hear a lot of us, a lot of us, including myself, say this line right here. It's not fair. How many of you this week had something happen to you where you were like, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not how this should play out. That's not what I deserve. That's not what I've earned. This isn't how it should happen. Right? And it infuriates you. Well, brothers and sisters, the world is not fair. What I want you to see today, though, is I am so glad it is not fair. God is not fair to us. And that is the greatest thing ever. Because if life was fair, maybe you would be paid a few more dollars every hour you work. Maybe you would have gotten your promotion a little bit earlier. Maybe the person at work who never does anything but always takes the credit wouldn't have a job anymore. Right? Maybe if life was fair, you could line up a hundred different small things that would be going your way a little bit more. Right? If life was fair, I'd still have a 32-inch waist and a full head of hair. Right? But 
if life was fair, I would not be able to look at God Almighty and call Him my Father. If life was fair, I would not be able to look at you all and call you my family. If life was fair, all you and I could ever hope for is a long and slow death. I'm so glad life's not fair. The Father doesn't love us because we deserve it. The Father doesn't love you because you're great at keeping the Ten Commandments. The Father doesn't love you because you're here at church this morning. The Father doesn't love you because you put some dollar bills in the giving box in the back. You could never earn the Father's love. The Father loves you, though, because you're His. The Father loves you because you are a piece of Him. When we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of man. And it's so beautiful to me because when you see God create everything else in the universe, He does it through word. He speaks the earth into existence. He speaks the stars into existence. He speaks the animals into existence. Everything is created through His Word, except man. With man, it says this, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God shaped you, molded you, handcrafted you and then took his own spirit his own breath and put it in you that same reason that when Tyler was sitting there blue and I'd never known who he was or known anything about him my whole world felt like it was hanging in the balance was because that was my boy that's the same way God feels when he looks at you that's my child mine I made them. I created them. I live in them. And God doesn't just give us this view once. He, he, throughout His Word, describes this to us. Look at Psalm 139, 13. For, in, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Man, I can't even tell you how many times I've put this verse up in front of you guys. But it's beautiful. Because what you see is God's not got like some human being soul factory where he's just churning them out. Boom, 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 right? Just stamping out spirits. Keep them moving. Keep them moving, right? He's intricately weaving each spirit together. You're not an accident. You're not some chemical imbalance. You're not some... DNA mixed together that pops something out. You are a handcrafted masterpiece of God. Shaped by Him with intention and purpose and love. And when He looks at you, that's what He sees. And that's why no matter how far we go in the muck, no matter how many times we turn away from Him, we curse Him, we run from Him, we embrace sin, it doesn't matter because what it cannot change is we're still His. We're still His. Now His love is such that He'll let us choose. He'll let us choose to run towards Him or He'll let us choose to run our own way. He will let us make that choice. But what you and I have a peace in is knowing that if any time, no matter what I've done, I ever start running back to Him, 
I know he's coming back for me. I know just like this, Father, he is sitting there every morning on the horizon looking for me. And when he sees my heart turn back to him, no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, if he sees me taking steps that way, he's going to run. He's going to embrace me. He's going to kiss me and he is going to celebrate that I am home. That I'm back where I belong. Amen. Brothers and sisters, that is the beauty of God. And that's why when we look at this, we don't see a God who is loving. We see a God who is love. Why does He do this? Why does He act this way? Because that's what He is. And that's why when you and I daily get to make choices, you and I really shouldn't be sitting there going, hmm, should I do this because it's wrong or right? Should I do this because the Bible says so or not because the Bible does it? You know what we really should be thinking about? Does this action let me fully embrace myself in God's love? Will this deed, will this activity, will this word spoken, will this relationship, will this behavior, will this thing either push me further from Him or will it pull me closer to Him? And what should motivate us is not right and wrong. What should motivate us is, I just want to be in my Father's arms. I just want to be right here with Him. God, I love that my children still have that. I know I'm about to lose it with some of them. But I still have these moments with Ty and Jake and definitely with Al where sometimes something goes wrong and they just need to be right here. Right, parents, you ever have that moment where like, it feels like a child wants to be like in you? Uh, like, it's not, like, if they were next to you, they, they want to be all up in here. That's what God wants us to feel towards Him. That passionate desire to be in the Father's arms. Let me leave you with one last verse. In 1 John 4.16 it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in Him. That's God's point. The pursuit of Him is the pursuit of love. And He doesn't want us to just be near that love. He doesn't want us just to be beside that love. He wants us to live in that love. Day in and day out. He wants us to run towards that love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord. And we thank You for the immeasurable love You have for us, God. Father, it is so present to myself that I am not worthy to be your child and I'm not worthy to be loved by you. But I am so thankful that you don't care about that. I am so thankful that despite my sin, despite my weakness, you love me, Father. 
You treat me as your child. Father, I pray that each and every person in this room, that they have experienced that love. That they know what it's like to look to heaven and call you dad. Father, thank you for, for your forgiveness, for your mercy, and for your grace. Father, I ask that you will call all those lost hearts back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come forward. I'm going to ask Brother James to be in the back. And as Maria sings, if there's anything on your heart that you just need to have somebody else praying with you about, you feel free to come to any of us and let us know, and we'll be glad to pray with you. As always, that invitation extends to outside service. If you ever, ever need to talk to someone, you call us, you text us, you get a hold of us, and we will be glad to do that. Maria? Let's all stand.
to make sure I knew that he could hear me singing. So I apologize to you, James, for my offensive voice. Um, a couple things before we close. One, we got a, a lot of things happening this month. So next Saturday, uh, December 8th at 10 a.m., we have a work day. Uh, so if you can be here for that, we'd greatly appreciate it. Uh, we're doing some cleaning. I know my mic's on now, James. I hear you. I see you. I see you. Um, second, December 15th. Uh, we are having our Christmas party. It's going to be here at church from 4 to 6 p.m. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. Baptist, party, can those two words collide in the same sentence? They can, and it's fun. So we hope you'll come out. Uh, please grab a newsletter. You'll see all the other details. Nancy, what did you have for us? I want to thank everybody who's been helping with stockings for the terminally ill at the VA hospital. And maybe a good time for us to put them together with the next Saturday. Okay. I have got some donations. I also have a list of uh, more donations to fill this out. And I want to thank all the ladies who have been helping. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. So 10 a.m. next Saturday, we'll meet up. Uh, we'll, we'll have a two-fight a two, uh, there, okay? We'll have some people doing stockings, and we'll have some of us uh, doing some, some labor over there in the old building, all right? So 10 a.m., uh, we'll see you Saturday. Um, one, James, you got more for me? I just want to make sure what time that Okay. So, I think we've covered everything now that you're standing here for 25 minutes. Uh, let's go ahead and close. Uh, as always, I remind you of three things today. I'm mixing it up on you guys. One, why do you exist? You exist to glorify God. 
And how do we do that? By building a family of disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. And you do that by showing the power, love, and self-discipline that He's given you. So go outside those walls and you get that done. I love you guys and have a great week.